Britflix podcast comes absolutely free. So can I ask a favour? I urge everyone to go over to my iTunes page, Stitcher page, SoundCloud page, or Spotify page, or whatever podcast medium you're using to listen, and please rate and review us. You can just rate us. They all have star meters, which can be clicked on in absolutely no time at all. Just click on it and you're done. And it'd be really helpful. Trust me. The higher the star meter, the more reviews we get, the more ratings we get, the more the Britflix.com podcast goes up the charts. Please, please, please. Come on, I'm begging you now. Everyone listening, go to iTunes, Stitcher, SoundCloud or Spotify pages, type Britflix.com podcast and rate us. And if you've got a little bit more time on your hands, why not review us as well? Just two or three words of praise will do the world of good. It's really simple and really quick. Now on with the show. Welcome to another Britflix.com podcast. Frightfest preview series 2019. My name's Stuart Wright and today's, or this episode, I keep saying today, but obviously people can listen to it any time of the day, night, morning or wherever. Uh, this episode's guests are Toby Poser and John Adams. Welcome to the show. Thanks so much for having us. We're hello, excited. Hello. Absolutely my pleasure, uh, and as just to just to repeat it uh, for the benefit of the audience, because we did have a chat before we started recording the show, I fucking love their film. Uh, the film's called The Deeper You Dig, and uh, does one of you want to give the audience a brief synopsis as to what it is about? It's about a man that uh, has an accident late at night and um, tries to cover his tracks, and it's about a mother who's trying to uncover those tracks. And it's about a child that is just trying to find her mother. What a brilliant description. That was a proper, proper spoiler proof in many senses. And as I've seen it, I am going to, I'm going to do my utmost and uh, you can tell me to shut up if I am spoiling and I'm doing my best not to because what we will focus on is um, is the process of filmmaking as much as anything else. So it's like relaying what you did to make the films, which anything else. But before we do that, it's the 20th anniversary of um, of Frightfest this year. So what I'm asking all the guests is, what do they remember of their 20th year or their 20th birthday? It doesn't have to be the birthday itself, but just does anything for you? Does anything spring to mind? Oh, yeah. Uh, so I actually lived in London when I was 20. Okay. I was, yeah, I was spending um, my third year of college in London, and I went to Goldsmiths College in southeast London studying uh, theater. And I had the most amazing year ever. I think I saw close to 100 plays within that year. Jesus. Which is which was even better than my, my theater education at the school, just watching all the theater in England and, and, um, and being able to afford it, which is something you can't always do in America. Mm-hmm. And I must have just walked over the entire city over that year. And it's, it's a time I'll never forget. I loved it. John, what do you, what, what's your 20th year about? My 20th year is when I was 20 years old. I, I, this is... We we can say anything we want on this podcast, correct? You can, yeah. I'll, I'll, well, don't confess to murder. I mean, that's not a good thing. Okay, but... good. We, I won't confess to murder. That would be more about our movie. So <laughs> when I was 20, I quit college mm-hmm. uh, and 
walked around the country hitchhiking the U.S. and uh, basically had a great time smoking weed and having terrific trips <laughs> and trying to find myself and just getting more lost. And um, it was really wonderful. And I'll always love that 20th year of drifting. Fantastic, fantastic. With, uh, so I have to ask then, Toby, what, what, was your, what was your favorite aspect of London? I loved, uh, well, it's sort of repetitive, but I did love the theater scene there mm -hmm. since that's what I was obsessed with. So that's what I was studying and ended up doing. So I, I thought that this theater there from, I mean, I would, I would pick up a Time Out magazine and I would go to these tiny little places in the basement of a pub or I'd go to the huge national theater. Um, there just was everything and it was quite affordable. This would have been 1989, mm -hmm. 1990 when I lived there. And, um, and of course, that's where I was introduced to Indian food. <laughs> and, and I've never lost a love of that. And that was, so those are the things that pop out of my head. And, and John, what did you discover about America as you drifted around it, stoned and tripping? Well, I think I discovered that there's two kinds of people that pick you up when you're hitchhiking. And they're either Christians or they're lunatics. And um, it was really fun because I did... Uh, actually start to enjoy uh, like kind of reading about religion and then I went back to college and and was a comparative religion major so um and then this movie that we just made is heavily affected not necessarily by religion but like by Gnosticism and some of the like kind of wild sects way back you know in the early days well you've given me a segue there so I'll follow you um the, 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 you you, you co-direct the movie, you co-write the movie, you co-star in the movie, <laughs> you have your daughter in the movie. Uh, so it's, a, it's very much a family affair, the, uh, the making of this movie, it's true to say. 100% family affair. It's the three of us now. It was the four of us. Our older girl, um, now 20... Her name's Lulu, and she went to college, actually. So she kind of left us. We used to make movies together. Now it's just the three of us. And this is your fifth movie as uh, as a as a unit, as it were. It's our fifth movie. It's our it's our first horror movie, and it's just been just a terrifically wonderful experience making a horror movie because you're allowed a lot of artistic freedom. It's just we just loved it. Well, let's let's. I mean, let's drill down on that then. So for, in the in the writing of it, then, um, what would you say was um, was the kernel of an idea? Um, that, that sort of the pair you couldn't let go that, that developed into what became the movie The Deep You Dig? Well, actually, um, my daughter my daughter plays soccer. She's a big soccer player. So we spend a lot of time, um, since we live up in the mountains, there's no club teams around us. So we have to drive an hour and a half to, to soccer practice. Mm -hmm. And so we spend a lot of time talking together and we're always pitching each other movie ideas. And I don't remember who pitched this one, but we first... She either pitched it or I pitched it to her. And the idea was, you know, um, this guy's just not being able to get rid of his guilt after killing a, a kid. And she was interested in the ghost aspect of it. And I was interested in the guilt aspect of it. And we kind of developed it. And then um, Toby was writing a script on her own. And we kept talking about it around her until Toby finally said, OK, great. And then Toby took it over. And really fleshed it out. And to, to, to Toby, then, what were you, what were you seeing then in this idea that was that, that was maybe 
like a Venn diagram falling into the stuff you were thinking, but then it kind of developed further. Yeah, sure. I was really interested in the aspect of a, a mother's a mother's journey, um, and what to what without spoiling it, to what extent a mother would go to be close to her daughter. Mm. And I thought that you could do some twisted shit, you know, figuring that out. <laughs> uh, and 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 I think our film is a little twisted in that sense. Yeah. No, no, it's definitely twisted, Toby. Don't don't make that mistake. That it's not. <laughs> uh, I, I can I can concur. It's twisted, but in a good way, obviously, in the way that horror films should. Um, now, uh, what, what was in that sense then? When you, when you, how do you two write together? How does that work on a practical level? Uh, often we'll. John tends to be very spontaneous, and he likes to shoot things, uh, which can be really great. And then we'll go into we'll edit it that night and see does this work? Um, if not, we'll reshoot it. I tend to be a bit of ha- Hamlet like, where I, I tend to like to overthink things. So we'll do things both ways. We'll do something spontaneously. And then perhaps I will write something a little more um, detailed that will correlate to other parts of the film and we'll reshoot them that way. And or riff off of a, of a script I've written. Hmm. And, and then between the two of us, we're pretty good mixture with his spontaneity and my overthinking things. We usually meet in the middle somewhere. Yeah. A good example is kind of like, well, I like, I, I just wanted to cut somebody's head off in this movie, but Toby needed to understand, well, why would we cut somebody's head off in this movie? And that's what's fun is like (laughs) the visual versus cerebral and um, putting those things together. And I love that Toby figures out why we need to cut somebody's head off because obviously in the end, that's what makes the movie really fun is why is this happening? No, it, it never ceases to make me smile when I'm having a chat with someone and they're telling me what, how they justify chopping someone's head off. <laughs> yeah, it never ceases to make us smile too. We're, we're, we're thinking of more, you know, things to chop off in our next movie. So Toby has to, I can figure out what to chop off and she's got to figure out why I'm doing it. Now, there's, there's, obviously there's, there's, a, there's a great deal of horror, the supernatural in this, but there was a, a film that, stood, that struck me uh, as, as, um, as a sort of, to, I guess tonal comparable would be uh, Coen Brothers' Blood Simple, um, in the sense of just that simple trick, that simple tear trigger of a mistake is made, and then more bad decisions are made thereafter that compound the the, the bad thing that happened. Uh, what do you think it is about about human nature? Like obviously you 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 were playing the character John, and you you, you writing it Toby about how. We we can't we we're, we're so afraid of holding hands up and going we made a mistake we'd rather make an absolutely bigger one. <laughs> yeah, I love that about. Um, well, you know, I think you're good at talking about that concept because you're always talking about, you know, how sometimes we just keep, you know, you start digging a hole to hell and for some reason you just keep going, you know. And um, I thought that it was fun to explore the fact that in the beginning of this, this guy's first mistake is bad, but it's not, we all could have made it all. Most of us, you know, mm. I'm not going to put everybody in this boat, but we all, you know, as, as I grow older, I become less judgmental because of all the mistakes I've made and what they could have, what could have happened with mm. some of the, the mistakes I've made. I've been very lucky because my mistakes weren't, didn't end in, you know, mortality of somebody else or, or something, you know what I'm, you know what I'm saying? Like Mm. we've all done incredibly stupid things, 
and um, and some of us have been lucky that that those stupid things didn't have just awful consequences. No, totally, totally. Um, Toby, your your performance in this, um, I'd, I'd, I'd made my wife talking about it. We were we were kind of like, wow, this is this is uh, this we we'd not seen you before, so it was like we we were just sort of really enjoying what you were doing. And given the nature of the story, and given you are a parent, and it is your daughter in the film and stuff, is is um, and also the the idea of acting and, and directing yourself. How how do you how do you balance the two? You know the idea of getting the performance as an actor, getting the performance you need to get in the camera from the director's point of view. Uh, yeah, yeah, that can be really. Uh, I think that might be harder for me sometimes than I think John and Zelda seem to be able to seamlessly kind of slip in and out of when they're behind the camera and in front of it. I think for me, coming from a history of acting, sometimes I'm a it can be a little harder for me to separate my, myself from when I want to be directing and when I actually just want to be performing over five films, it's gotten a little easier, mm. but I will say, I will say that there were some things that were, since I am a mom, um, it was, and it's my favorite job in the world that kind of came so naturally to me to understanding the grief of what a mother would be going through that it, it was, I didn't have to think too much about that. But I will say I was also going through something during this uh, production. I actually was going through uh, uh, cancer during the production. So, so the, and it was a reproductive cancer. Mm -hmm. So there's this strange sort of correlation between what I was going through in life, having that part of me as a 50 year old woman, um, basically taken out removed from me physically and the emotional story of Ivy, my character, the mother character's uh, loss of her daughter. Um, so there was this, as far as writing went, it really, I think, sweetened my writing. Mm -hmm. Sweetened is, is much more sinister than that, but it, it, it helped fine tune my writing to make it a, a little more um, emotionally sound, I think. So that was something that as a mother just was like, oh, I'm going through this. Let's just use it. <laughs> and, and, yeah, and I have to just if I could just add to that, since uh, Zelda and I were behind the camera filming Toby in a bunch of scenes right after she had had this brutal operation and, you know, all this heady stuff. Mm. And, and, but she, you know what, it would, it would be snowing and Toby would say, uh, let's go shoot this next scene. And, and um, she would go out and shoot it. And boy, it really, I mean, to me, it comes across, I see her, it just comes across so heavy duty and uh, kind of amazing. And kind of like art does imitate life. And, you know, you can either sit around and cry about it or you can use it and, and accept it. And I think Toby used it and accepted it and really well. And, you know, that's what's beautiful about her. I might, I might be making a leap of faith here, but in terms of the character that you're playing, Toby, there's, there's, the, there's, the, um, there's obviously there's, there's, a, there's, a, there's the parents bond with the child and what that what instinctively that does to some does for somebody, but also the nature of believing you've got second sight, the tower reading and all that kind of thing, which again is an instinctive thing, not a, not a thing you can, you can put in a bottle and go, there it is. Take some away with you, please. Um, right. Did, 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 does that make sense? I mean, I might be reading too much into it. I don't know. Um, yeah, I think we had a lot of fun with, with the, with the second sight, 
stuff and working with the tarot, uh, it just, it seemed, I think mothers do have a certain kind of intuition. Uh, for instance, my mom just died and, <laughs> and I, I really <laughs> hey, knew, we're the fun bunch. <laughs> but I, I kind of knew exactly when she was going to die. And I literally was with her holding her hand when she died about not even two weeks ago. And, um, this is the truth. So that was something, you know, since I'm really interested in drama, that was something we, we could really make a hybrid of the drama that we love, which is in, in a drama of a woman refining her faith, let's say, mm-hmm. but, it, but include really cool shit like, like the tarot and to kind of bend that, to bend the occult to our needs was just really fun. And, and for people, when they see the film, they'll see the fantastic vistas of, of the Catskills where you shot the film and... To make it easy for yourself, you shot it in snow. <laughs> do you want to talk about? I obviously I jest there. Um, do you want to talk about about de- making that decision and 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 how you made that work for you? Um, Zelda and I, uh, the year before, we knew we we knew we wanted to make a horror movie, so we did a little test run. We made a little tiny short little horror movie together and shot it in the snow. And just fell in love with the contrast of the snow and these mountains. They're they're real they're they're real dark mountains. And um, we, Zelda and I, really decided that the next movie, you know, this the deeper you dig movie, that we really wanted to mostly shoot it just as we did this practice run because it looked so beautiful. And so we we basically took out a lot of the saturation and added a little more contrast and it. And it just really captures the heaviness of the Catskill Mountains, but also the tone of the movie. And and if you could flip, a, if you could choose, because obviously reading your production notes, you talk about having filmed in the Mojave Desert, Mojave Desert or Catskill Snow Snow Covered Mountains, which is which is the easiest to shoot in? I would say absolutely the Catskill Mountains. The Mojave Desert is. Oh my God, that's I, I'm well. I I grew up here, so I can deal with freezing, but 120 is tough. You also get a lot of sand in the camera, um, yeah. And and it's very hard to deal with that insane amount of light. Like one of the things about this whole winter that we filmed was it was overcast, so yeah. we never had to deal much with blown out. We didn't have to fight the light. We, the light was just wonderful for us. And the Mojave Desert, it's never wonderful for you. It's like just blasting on you. And you never know when the, your cast is going to step on a rattlesnake or get stung <laughs> by a scorpion. So you're always frightened of that. And here, usually the bears are hibernating in winter. Yeah. <laughs> <laughs> you say that so matter of fact. I did. <laughs> if I could just give you a stark contrast... Um, I did, a, I did a quick Google search as to what's dangerous in the UK wild. <laughs> and and it, you might, it won't surprise to learn there's not a lot for starters. And the top one was tick. Oh, that's pretty funny. Well, I've already had Lyme's disease and babesiosis. Yeah. Yeah, so. I mean, it's not fun, obviously, but the idea of accidentally stepping on a rattlesnake strikes me as a more immediate danger than... Realize you've been. Oh yeah, no, that's not fun. You're in a lot of trouble when you're out in the Mojave and you step on a rattlesnake. Now, go on, Toby. Sorry. Although where we live right now, we have a family of bears that is constantly outside our house, and they're 
two big fuckers too. Yeah, I mean, they're they're really big. And now they're not afraid of us, so it's a big pain in the butt. <laughs> I did. I I worked on a children's camp up in uh, Long Lake, uh, north of Albany. Um, oh wow! And um, and. That was the first time I've ever come into contact with a bear. Obviously, there wasn't many other opportunities before that to that day. <laughs> um, but there was a, is it black? The black bear, the ones that's like to come in the kitchen, isn't it? Yeah. Yeah. So the, the kids' kitchen, we had a black bear come and visit and obviously quite like the big bucket of peanut butter. Um, <laughs> and they had to shoot it with some bird shot to give it a spank on the backside <laughs> uh, to, to sort of go, you're not welcome here. You're not welcome. And then sounds to, about right. Yeah, that then I had to spend right. then I had to spend I think two hours lying to ten year olds that it was a car misfiring, not a shotgun shot they just heard. Because <laughs> they thought That's the bear fun. they thought the bear had died. But uh, I digress. Um in um in, in in with all the Vista stuff, one of the things that struck me about some of the choices you made for what you got in camera is the wonderful sort of intense scenes where it's like it's the character. So I'm thinking of scenes with you, Toby, where it's just a black background and you. Yeah, John really set that up, which is cool because we don't have any fancy lights or equipment or anything. We've got a camera, a Canon 5D. Sometimes hmm. we use a 6D. And in that sense, I think John just put up a construction light we, um, right, above, right above me. Yeah. Because um, it looks so great, and the important thing was what she was going through, and we didn't need a background, I didn't think, and it just looks so great. She also looks a little skeletal in that construction light. Yeah, there's a, but it, it, it's it's also quite it's isolated. It's, it's it's literally isolating, isn't it, for the character who is literally Thank isolated. You. That's exactly what we were hoping people would say was she is completely alone in the dark. Now, in and amongst all that. Then you, you also have some, some, you have a lot of fun going a bit batshit crazy as well within this film. <laughs> uh, so do you want to, do you want to, I mean, without spoilers, I suppose, but do you want to sort of shed a light on some of those, some of those that you were kind of, I mean, obviously you're proud of the entire film. I'm not, I'm not trying to, I'm not trying to sort of diminish anything, but just thinking about maybe uh, something that when you were thinking about how the frigging hell are we going to do this um, in terms of the batshit crazy stuff that goes on. Well, I think that's a great question, and I think the answer is pretty simple. We wanted to show this woman going through the, step, the seven stages of grief. Mm -hmm. And so instead of having her cry and you know use drama that can be just so overbearing with grief and sadness, we thought, hey, this would be great if we could show the seven stages of grief in, like, in a horror context. Mm. So... That just made her going through the seven stages so much fun because we got to sit around and think of scenarios that were kind of horror-esque that were, you know, and, and then we also got to have the artistic freedom to film them any way we wanted. So we did it a lot. We shot a lot more of those circles than the, you know, the audience is going to see. Mm -hmm. And some worked and some didn't. And, you know, we settled on the ones that we found worked. And it was just really fun to have that artistic freedom to be able to just 
I don't know. Just what you... I think John also really liked collecting anything that would grow maggots. <laughs> <laughs> that's that's true. Because um, you know, there's a lot of wildlife up here, and and when it gets warm, there are a lot of maggots that collect in dead things, and and John just doesn't shy away from that at all. <laughs> Look, we live in the country, and there's a lot of roadkill, and basically. Roadkill is the star of our movie. And, you know, it's, it's, road, my neighbors think we're nuts, but, but that's okay. <laughs> uh, one, of, one of the things that really struck me when I was watching it, and it was something I discussed, discussed with my wife, it's like, it, you, you, the film is grounded in reality. We know what's going on, we know what the real world is. But also, as, as a piece of work for the 90 minutes, I also felt like I was in a complete dream as well. That whole thing that cinema does really well is that it just takes you into something unbelievable and you go, do you know what? I'm buying it. I'm, I'm there. I'm, 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 as, I'm as scared as Toby's character is. I'm as, I'm as fascinated. I'm as, sorry, as, as your character is, John, and I'm, as, and I'm as curious as Toby's character is about what's going on, what the answers are and how I feel. But yeah, obviously, if you were to try and say that in the real world and just make it like a dope opera, it wouldn't, it wouldn't stand up. But the... The way that you move between, like the tonal shifts with the black background, or the the meeting the um, the tarot card student who's now become the kind of expert who sold lots of books. These are really big shifts that don't make absolute sense in a literal way, but they make you move amongst the action of the story and make you feel like you're in a dream. Well, terrific. That's great to hear. Yeah, I mean that's something that we were hoping we we wanted it to be a dream, a dreamy thing, and you know to show like when something terrible happens it's it's always interesting that somebody like somebody knows the truth and somebody doesn't know the truth and the truth is right in front of that person who doesn't know it right mm. but and uh, we wanted to play around with that the fact that she's constantly passing the truth the truth's right in front of her but she's got to reach into her spirituality to actually see it and that was fun also acting wise something that we've we really all agree on is you have to believe you have to believe what you're acting. Like, it can be really far out to say, I believe in this, that this tarot card means something. Or it can be strange, like in the scene with the, the, the mentor who became, the mentee became the mentor who introduced mm. this sort of karmic box to the Ivy character. Mm. It would be easy to play that scene um, and it wouldn't work if I didn't completely buy it. And so we decide that anything we're doing in this horror genre, we have to completely buy if, if the audience is going to buy it too. Um, so that was a good exercise, acting exercise. It can be hard to, to act, to act something that seems totally outrageous, but once you, once the actor really believes it, I think it conveys much better for the audience. But it's that, but, but I like that, that, that you, that you've gone to that, that, that sort of extra effort as it were to, give the supporting characters a character as opposed to, you know, we've all seen the, here's an expert just to give us some information we need technically. That would have been the easy way of doing it. But instead you make it your choice of who, of who he is and how he behaves is really, really, you know, exciting and enticing. And you don't have a clue where this is going. Um, and obviously neither does your character Toby at the, the point, even though right. we start the conversation off with these people know each other really well. It's sort of, I mean, it's going to be a crass comparison, but if you see, if you ever seen um, Taylor Sheridan's Hell High Water, you've got the, the woman working in the restaurant who just 
sort of steals the film almost. <laughs> yes, know? yes. You know, it's that idea of, no, obviously everybody in a film is the hero of the film, aren't they? Because that's in that moment. Well, he's he's basically a family member, the guy who plays that role. His name's Sean Wilson, and, and he just... He was one take Charlie. He he no. knew what he wanted to do and he did it and we were done. It was amazing. It was so fun to let him just do his thing. And like Toby said, he just bought it and delivered it. But equally, the, the flip side of that is like, uh, is he Fue, Figueredo? Is that how I say it? The detective. Uh, oh, de- is he? Yeah. Is he? Figueredo. When, when she's interviewing you, John, for the first time, I'm completely wrong footing you. Is oh yeah, with her kind of like matter of factness and 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 even that you could even call it attitude. Which, for what is a polite inquiry, again the audience is like, Does, is everybody onto this? Do we know? Are we? <laughs> <laughs> well, it's interesting because the t- the detectives truly are. That's where they come from. Uh, the man playing Detective Sanford, he's from up here. He worked for the sheriff's department, and he we when we were. We just met him once and said, hey, we want to do this scene about a missing girl. He's been there, so he knew exactly how to do it, what Mm. to say. We really leaned on him for advice, but let him just run with it. And then Izzy was an undercover cop in New York City for years. No way. Yeah, so she (laughs) is a total different kind of, you know... uh, law beast and yeah. and it was they were a really interesting couple didn't you think and what was fun was we didn't give them we did not write them lines because we were worried that if we gave them lines that they would get nervous and try to act so they didn't have lines and all that all that you see that attitude and everything is just her just breaking balls and him just being a classic small town cop no, honestly yeah no it, it will uh, knowing that now and i've been seeing what i've seen it sort of it speaks volumes there because it yeah it felt it felt brilliant, brilliantly obtuse and authentic all at the same time. Um, Good, it's, yeah, they were so fun. Uh, now, it, 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 the, the the film in a, in a in a in its own way, uh, and it's interesting because a you're you're a, you're a, you're a married couple, you're also a man and a woman, uh, and the film has kind of a really interesting things to say about sort of gender identity issues. In and you know, in and amongst it all, um, yeah. How did you? I mean, obviously, from from the, from the male and the female point of view, how did you? Because and I don't, I'm, I'm I'm talking and mumbling because I'm following my words because I don't want to I don't want to give any spoilers. But um, was that something you were conscious of in what you were doing, or something you kind of saw after the fact when you when you looked at what the film was? That was Toby. Toby wanted that in this movie. Uh, she thought that that would be really important because it's kind of something maybe that hasn't been, well, we didn't, she didn't feel that like, she thought it'd be a fun thing to explore in a horror movie. Like, Hey, let's go here in a horror movie because it'll be fun. And it, and it's, it's so timely. And I think Toby really ran the show on that. And, and I think it was really smart and I love that part of the movie and it was her idea. Yeah, we wanted to, I mean, at times I think we toyed with how far we wanted to go with the whole um, gender gender uh, subject, but uh, and in the end we decided being subtle was mm. the stronger choice and, um, and would also just be more, have more of an, an, an intelligent take than just making a farce out of it. 
No, yeah, because it's it's. I think. I mean, I'm. I, I've you know I've seen I've seen far too many uh, horror films for it to be healthy for someone, uh, and I don't think I've seen, certainly in my experience, this this way of showing a haunting. Now, I don't, I don't think that I think that's vague enough not to not to present a spoiler for anyone listening who hasn't seen the film, and when they see it, they'll know what I mean. Uh, so you know. It's, yeah, we were yeah. we were hoping for that. Sorry, I just interrupted you, but we were hoping for that. We were hoping to show a new haunting. Yeah, no, I, I mean, I feel like, I mean, there's, there's, there's similar things, but like you said, again, and, and I think it, it, it's like you were saying earlier about when, when, we, when, you, when horror films play something straight as opposed to knowing or sniggering, um, it, 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 becomes, it, it becomes easier to sort of take because you kind of believe it's happening. And it's really, it's really clever. And, it, and, and I think you, you, what I enjoyed, what I enjoyed really, what, sorry, what I enjoyed most about it was, was how iterative it was Without, like you say, without descending into sort of wah, wah, wah. <laughs> <laughs> Thank you. Yeah, my, I think my favorite scene in the movie is one where um, uh, the current character is talking to himself in a mirror. I won't give anything away, hmm. but it was such a simple, simple one take scene, but it said so much. You know which one I'm talking about? Yeah, 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 yeah. We're, yeah, to me that I that's the most powerful scene in the movie to me, and I, I John did a great job with it. Well, I also think that your idea, Toby, had the idea of the bathroom scene when Kurt goes to the bathroom, mm. and um, that did not make the first cut of the movie. And and Toby had talked about that scene and talked about it, and we had tried to shoot it once, and it didn't really work because you're it's a little dangerous looking cornball. Yeah, and um, she went back. And directed me through it so that it it's not corny and it's and um, it was a really fun scene and I'm so glad it's in the movie now. That's my, that's one of my favourite bits in terms of because obviously while you you're watching it now what the fuck's going on? <laughs> exactly. That was, that was kind of where I looked at my wife and we went what is it really? So yeah, right. no, we we bought it. Uh, it was like we enjoy, we we sort of if you can enjoy it if that's the right word. Um, we definitely bought it anyway and we were kind of like right okay. And and I and I, I I, which the iterative thing. It's like uh, as as you know, I, I can't remember who said it now, but you know, the difference between screenplays and real life is a screenplay has to make sense, whereas life very rarely does make sense. And I loved how you've got you litter the beginning of the film with um, with lots of setups, which are just things that uh, Echo says. That oh, then, good. That then become just you know your your payoffs in terms of what's what's going on. Well, that's Toby again. That's you should talk about that because that's your that's Toby's smarts. I just I'm really interested in 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 uh, circles within movies, little tiny things. Often to me, they might even be subliminal that the audience doesn't notice, but that re that is things that are revisited throughout the the film. To me, make a really great story. Um, it's interesting. Like there might be a snake, and then that correlates later to the talk of a worm. Or um, just, yeah, just the tiny little circles that can um, revisit throughout a movie are fun to think of. Now, uh, I'm going to try and be vague, but hopefully you'll know what I'm talking about. Um, there's, there's a roadkill scene. I'm guessing it's the remnants of some roadkill. I don't think you've made it. Uh, where you're, you're receiving said piece of roadkill, Toby. Yeah. Do you know what I mean? Oh. <laughs> <laughs> yes, I do. <laughs> yes, good times. So, uh, whose big idea was that? Was um, I'm presuming that wasn't yours, Toby? 
That was that. You got that right. That was John's. Back to the maggots. <laughs> oh yeah, that was. I mean, if you look closely at the whole scene, that is a whole buffet of roadkill that. Basically, we had to shoot that scene because our entire freezer was filled with bags of roadkill. So Toby's like, hey, we've got to do this. And I was like, okay, great. Well, I know what we're going to do. So let's get out there and film it. And when we got out there, it was really fun. (laughs) And I think Toby did a great job. And basically, that whole scene is about, it's kind of like a little reference to the devil. And it's like, the devil's not going to bring you a little piece of knowledge you're going to eat all the knowledge mm-hmm. you're going to even you're even going to eat the knowledge bringer and i i love that because you know basically it's the beginning of her spiritual journey to to realize the most awful thing that could happen to any human being is the loss of their child and she, she that's the beginning of her journey to find out the answer and so i wanted it to be awful also, it, it, that also was the first circle, which um, is in the seven stages of grief, I think is denial. Mm. So it's, you know, she doesn't want to eat it, man. Mm. She doesn't want to eat it, but she's going to be force fed it. <laughs> the truth. I have to, I have to tell you, this, this was just sort of, uh, and it's not, to talk about the beginning of the film is, is can, in no way spoiled. So the opening, the opening moment where you're talking to Echo, Toby, uh, and obviously it's really your daughter. <laughs> And I didn't know that until after the fact, because I, t- I turned to my wife and I said, when that scene finished and you kind of had that funny line about, uh, do you want me to kick her fucking ass or something? <laughs> to teach her. I turned to my wife and went, do you know what? You could really believe their mother and daughter, couldn't you? <laughs> <laughs> and then I read the production notes after, I'm like, oh, they are. <laughs> yeah, Zelda um, is 15 and and she, she really... It, is involved with everything we do too. She has great input. We call our kids the the bullshit monitors because they really have have an anchor in what looks real and what doesn't sound like, you know, a bunch of baloney. Um, yeah. And another thing that Zelda brings to the table is she's a great director and a great camera woman because yeah. Zelda watches a lot of like uh, a lot of media that, that Toby and I don't watch, and and she's become really savvy about camera work like she cares about camera work so all the most of the moving camera work is all devised by zelda like she was really a ball breaker on making sure that we had motion and that you know we had follow focuses and um depth of field things like she pays so much attention to that stuff it's really wonderful to have a a young person you know have that artistic um power in our in our family here because I think she's incredibly smart and she sees things that, you know, me and Toby just don't think about. No, totally, totally. Uh, now let's, uh, let's tell people then when can they see the Diggy a Deep at Fryfest? Oh, it's going to be Friday, uh, August 23rd at nine o'clock in the, um, one of the, um, the Leicester square cinemas, the, uh, yeah, one of the I think it's called Cine, Cinemark, Cine, Cineworld. Yeah, Cineworld Le- is the is the is the, is yes. the cinema. Yeah, no, and and at nine nine o'clock on the twenty third. Brilliant, and I'll put in, like I said, I'll put a link in the show notes to uh, to let people get details for it. 
And, it just and we'll be... be there, so we'd love to meet everybody. If anybody has any questions, we'll be there having fun. We just can't wait. The entire festival will yeah. be there. We're just so thrilled to be invited to this amazing event. You're going to have a ball. <laughs> well, look, it just gives me to say thank you very much for giving us your time on the podcast. Thank you so much, Stuart. And yeah, thanks for your smart questions and your care. Just so wonderful. The Britflix podcast is provided absolutely free. If you want to help me get the podcast out to more people, please take a moment to leave a review on iTunes. Or if you want to help me out directly, there's a link in the show notes to my Patreon page. All contributions are welcome. And the music is by Chris Reed of thecomposers.tv. Bet MGM has an unreal deal for sports fans in Virginia. Turn $5 into $150 instantly when you place your first wager at Bet MGM. Simply download the Bet MGM app and sign up using code CHAMPION150. Then, place a $5 wager on any sport. You'll receive $150 in bonus bets, regardless of your wager's outcome. And if you think the fun stops there, the king of sportsbooks has plenty of surprises in store. Check out daily promotions, same game parlays, live bets, and so much more. Download the app in Virginia today and get $150 in bonus bets instantly from your first wager, only at BetMGM. BetMGM and GameSense remind you to play responsibly. See BetMGM.com for terms. 21 plus only. Virginia only. New customer offer. Subject to eligibility requirements. Rewards are non-withdrawable bonus bets that expire in seven days. Please gamble responsibly. Gambling problem? Call 1-800-GAMBLER. Promotional offer not available in Washington, D.C.